0: somebody told me pretty early on I should look at trucking insurance I said why and they said well that's the Satan's pit of insurance so at that point I realized that if I see a house on fire with people running out I immediately pause scratch my head and wonder what's the big deal sure. uh, let's let's get into it welcome to the operate podcast where we give you a behind the scenes look at company building from the perspective
1: of the builders themselves this is how we operate Welcome to the Operate Podcast. I'm Kerry Ransom. Today's episode is sponsored by BankTech Ventures, the first strategic investment fund designed by the community banking industry for community bank innovation and investment. BankTech identifies leading products and technologies for community banks and works with the founders and management teams to maximize their impact for community banks and their startup businesses as well. If you're a bank looking to innovate and invest in your future or a founder who wants to work with community banks, reach out, At banktechventures.com. My guest today is a longtime friend, Ian White, and he is currently the co-founder and CEO of Coffee Financial, which is a startup insurtech company that's transforming commercial trucking insurance and other financing products around that. We're going to talk a lot about that today. Ian was also the founder of a company when we met almost 20 years ago now, which is crazy. He had a company called Urban Mapping, It was uh, a super interesting company that I think we'll probably delve into a little bit, particularly in how he crowdsourced some of the data and and took a different approach to building a, a data company. He's been an economic forecaster. He was an entrepreneur in residence at Booz Allen. He's just this really thoughtful and insightful guy. Part of what I love about Ian is he is willing to have divergent views on things. And I think in a world where People like to jump on to the herd mentality. He's willing to, to stand on his own and see things that maybe other people don't see. And I always appreciate and enjoy that. Ian, thanks for joining me today. And, and it's going to be fun to see where this goes.
0: Thanks, Gary. Yeah, I'm thrilled to uh, be with you. I realize I think we initially met, maybe it was in 2007 in Florida. We actually we stayed at a relative of yours for an exclusive search conference where all the exclusive rooms were we're sold out. So we had to make do on our own and became fast friends from, I think, from that on.
1: Exactly. I think it was like a pseudo Airbnb-like experience that we, uh, we put together That's ourselves. Right. That's right. So this has been long overdue. As, as I said, let's start not with where we began. Let's start with where you are today and maybe we'll work backwards a bit. So Coffee Financial, how did it come about? How did it get started?
0: I sold the startup you mentioned to Urban mapping. Yeah. I sold that in 2015. I was living in San Francisco, which I didn't really love, but I was there. We can talk about that later. Yes. And took a trip around the world. You know, what do I do next kind of stuff? Nothing Nothing hit me in the face in terms of what to do or where to go or to be with. So I came back to San Francisco and I started something with a friend around earthquake insurance. And the idea here was the risk for quakes in San Francisco in the Bay Area or in the U.S., it's very poorly understood, meaning there's very little granularity of, of data to understand the risk. The way that it's generally priced is a function of the postal code. So it's almost as if your postal code is somehow a reflection of the the seismic structural risk, which is, of course, an absurd abstraction. But the reason is that nobody knows the actual soil type that underlies property. So what we had come up with is this idea to uh, use a a small lightweight um, electrical MEMS accelerometer to tease out the soil type. So think of it like a Glade air freshener, plug it in based on ambient vibration, noise, wind, buses going by, you can tease out the soil type. If you know that, you can then engage in kind of cherry picking and then selecting and then pricing risk more accurately. Unfortunately, to do this, you're tied into reinsurance and tied into the broader kind of markets of catastrophe coverage, uh, especially in California. At this point in maybe 2011 or 12 when I was looking at it, or no, sorry, 15 or so, the, um, the take rate for quake insurance was very, very low. Um, after 1989 quake, it was maybe up to a third. I think maybe now it's probably definitely under 5%. I decided I out of, sight, out of mind. Yeah. So I quickly realized like, this isn't going to work. I don't want to wait around. So after nine months, left San Francisco, did this thing at Booz Allen, and then worked at this kind of research outfit telling the hedge funds. why was the guy doing deals with SDKs and app publishers, ingesting a lot of location data? And we would use that to infer economic activity. Mm-hmm. And the basic deal is if you have a lot of confidence in, in the likelihood of what earnings are going to be based on foot traffic, you then deploy capital, you make a trade, you send that signal to your hedge fund partner who you know makes the money or not. That's one my eyes to the world of alternative data. Um, hated the industry, but love the thinking and the math behind mm-hmm. it because it's, it's a lot of data, it's a lot of math, it's also a lot of like, psychology, behavioral economics, because it doesn't matter if you're right, it really matters like, what are the expectations of the market relative to your correctness. So I left that thinking like, I didn't love it. It's extractive. But what I did love was, again, thinking about things in a really creative way, That is is there a place where I can be more than just an intermediary and just simply arm off some poor guy's back? Your sure. um, insurance, where you're effectively engaged in this, you know, it's a game of risk transfer and you're looking to pass that off to other parties and so you can do it by better modeling and understanding the actual, exposure and price it in and unfortunately or fortunately there's a bunch of regulatory you know regimes all around it um and then i began to look at like where does insurance where is it kind of dislocated where is it a mess going to use a lot of this kind of open data or non obvious data or call it alt data really and then somebody told me pretty early on i should look at trucking insurance i said why and they said well well ian that's the satan's pit of insurance so at that point, I realized that if I see a house on fire with people running out, I immediately pause, scratch my head and wonder, what's the big deal? Sure. Uh, let's let's get into it. So I was also introduced to my then, or my now, co-founder, Mike, I think that same week, who had just quit his family business, which was a fourth generation moving storage brokerage in, in Brooklyn. Uh, and he knew that something was afoot, meaning uh, autonomous vehicles are coming, Commercial insurance for trucking is priced upside down. It doesn't make any sense. Nobody makes money. Nobody's happy. And there's got to be a better way. Uh, so we didn't quite know what he was going to do, neither did I. So we just sat down uh, one day at a coffee shop on Broadway and kept coming back every day and then kind of started piecing things together. And so, you know, what became clear was what we initially thought of doing was selling a score based on the, the actual risk of a vehicle. Um that was our, our genesis for this because in trucking you don't look at trucks mm-hmm. <laughs> you only look at the operations and you look at the drivers the equipment is just kind of wrapped into the broad equation there is deemed to be no difference between a truck from 1999 and in 2019 quite quite literally so we initially had this concept of this vin score based on the unique serial number of a vehicle but insurers didn't know what to do with it because insurers don't think about things at the truck level. So then the question very much was, do we go off as some kind of SAS type business, doing a Carfax for trucks, making a little bit of money, maybe it's interesting, or do we just kind of lean in and really try to capture a lot more value by understanding the risk, pricing it and owning the risk. Mm-hmm. And so that's how we went down initially as, as an MGA, a managing general agency, which is basically a way for us to, to get in the game by kind of running on uh, other people's uh, regulatory capital. And and balance sheet that way, with an eye to building it up and doing it profitably and then taking our own risk over time. So at a high level, that's what we got there. And so I really love thinking about what data exists that people don't really think about. Obviously, there's this whole world of the truck and the truck related data and telematics, et cetera. But if you look more broadly, it's a whole lot more. And it's just, for me, it's like putting on a different set of glasses and going out in the world.
1: Uh, great jumping off point. There's so many, so many places I want to I go with this, Ian. So one of the things you you talked about is the historical approach, right? Today, they underwrite at the operation level and the driver level. And I remember you telling me early on that in many of these commercial fleets, the turnover of drivers in a a year. So you're doing underwriting at a snapshot and then the turnover of those drivers is, is super high. So yeah, talk be, a little bit more, like more that. about, yeah. How, like and i think just to give people a sense cuz not many people really understand commercial trucking insurance give people yeah. a sense of of how variable the the actual pricing to risk accuracy sure. is because it's it's incredibly high and then i want right. to go yeah. i want to go from there but yeah
0: okay yes yeah, so a couple of pieces broadly about trucking yeah. right for the audience so commercial trucking insurance we focus on trucking transportation so if your principal business is moving goods from a to b so that wouldn't be a Walmart because your business is really selling the goods. You just happen to have a fleet because it might be economically or strategically more advantageous for you. If you're, you know, Jimmy's moving and you're, you know, you're doing milk, you're moving eggs, right? It's gravel. These are all different categories. Your uh, auto transport. These are all different types of transportation businesses that um, involve a lot of, a lot of risk. Uh, we focus on the the SMB segment, which is largely the the owner-operator, which means one person, one truck, up to maybe 200 or so trucks. That's the vast majority of trucks on the road. 99% of motor carriers out there own fewer than, I think, 50 trucks. Mm-hmm. So if you look at Walmart, Schneider Transportation, UPS, there are not many of those. You just see them because each one has a lot of trucks. they sure. um, tend to have company drivers, but we've had this, awakening beginning a generation or two ago of the independent contractor. So we think about the Uber driver now being the gig economy worker. I say, no, 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 no. Let's go back to like 1980 with deregulation mm-hmm. of, uh, of trucking and well, you know, the kind of the Reagan era and all that stuff. But what that basically means is you have a lot of independent contractors who might be working for a small trucking company. Maybe they're hired on and running you know all their hours with the trucking company or maybe half their time is working for Kerry Co hauling the other half of the time, it might just be Ian Co driving his own truck with his own direct customer. So it's a pretty squirrely way to understand who does what. The margins are very, very thin, typically one to 3%. Now in the last 18 months, we've seen, you know, post COVID fuel prices spike, spot rates, shipping costs dropping like a brick, right? People are done, you know, hoarding toilet paper and tuna fish. Uh, inflation is eating away into margin in every context. The shippers, meaning the people who want the goods moved, They've got all the power now. So they're saying, we're going to give you 60-day payment terms, which means you as the uh, motor carrier, you've got to meet payroll. You've got to pay your bills, which you're probably coming up every 30 days. So you're going to have to like factor, which means you're giving up a bunch of points to just get in advance for those 30 or 60 mm-hmm. days. Um, driver turnover is very high. It's in excess of 100%, meaning the driver you underwrite today is not there next year And so and do they you know, get under
1: re do they re-underwrite then on the next year based on a new set of drivers? Or is, is there anything in there today that triggers that to change?
0: Yeah, I mean, we're notified when there's a new driver. Mm-hmm. Uh we we allow them or we disallow them. Uh sometimes we're not notified in a prompt manner. It's just an industry-wide sure. sort of phenomenon. But you know, if we're yeah, you know, if we've got drivers on, we'll we'll look at their motor vehicle records, see how they're performing. Um, but you could say there's a reason, sorry, questions like why is there a driver, driver shortage? That's one way to look at the question. There's a bit of a conspiratorial view, which says there is no driver shortage. There's a limitation on how much we're paying drivers, sure. right? Which I think is more to the point that's it. So if you look at how many people hold commercial driver's licenses and how many use them, that's not a one-to-one. Same thing with you know any certified professional. Everybody's a practicing doctor. But frankly, all these drivers, especially the smaller fleets, if they're getting paid per mile they're not making a lot of money. Like they may be doing a six hour run where it ends up taking them 12 hours door to door based on waiting around and stuck in traffic and a variety of other things. They can oftentimes make like five bucks an hour. I mean, this is just a slog, it's terrible. Like who wants to do that? So what you find is people get excited. They wanna become a driver and they sign on with maybe a large motor carrier, they're not making a lot of money. So then they said, you know, I can make it on my own. I can get business. So then they might lease their own truck. Right now they've got debts that they owe and responsibilities they have to meet. And they realize like, it's actually hard getting business. I've developed this customer service aspect of my my, my and trucking company. I'm only one person. So I'm going to do my accounting while I'm driving. I mean, being glib, but sure. th- these, are, these are the challenges. So it just gets really, really hard to do. And especially thinking about the next generation of drivers, which you desperately need. Uh, it's not an exciting career to go into. And if you look at it the way that it has been, now there is a better way to do it. But that's that's probably another question. So the the business itself is for insuring the goods, um, which is a line called motor truck cargo. There's physical damage on the truck, so if I'm driving and I hit something, there's also liability insurance. So if I hit somebody else, if I hit something else, right, that has to be paid for. The limits are much higher. Practically speaking, the limits CSL combined single limit. So when there is one crash the insurer is on the hook for up to a million dollars with our our lines of coverage mm-hmm. um if you're a walmart you have far more than a million dollars coverage because you know whoever gets into it is coming after you for everything that they can and so sure. you know walmart would do that we don't really insure the walmart's of the world it's just the the small fleets because they're having a more challenging time we recognize kind of the, the diamonds in the rough but let me let me pause and getting further from the question
1: very very helpful additional uh and And just you know sort of how how it has worked, what what's going on. So let's talk a little bit about alternative data. you 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 talked about how you really are enthralled and uh, and I want to go deeper into data. as you know, i'm I'm a huge believer in the power of data as well, particularly when you can look at it differently. But let's talk about what are the things that you are doing specifically differently in the data sources that you're using, whether it's at the equipment level or other factors, just to give people a sense of how yeah. you're you're the thinking about I, this very differently.
0: The way I think about it is, uh, so at the, I'll start with the truck itself. So if we look at a truck from when it comes off the assembly line to when it's scrapped, there are any number of things that will happen to the truck. It will be, so it comes off a line with a VIN, the unique serial number is identified and it's, it's sort of published for the world to see if you know where to look for it. Uh, not with complete detail, but with some level of detail. But at the dealership level, there might be something that happens to it. They might you know, put on some special aftermarket components. Uh, when there's a crash, pieces of the truck might be replaced, might be fixed. When there's a change in title, that something when there's a retrofit um, for let's say an aftermarket braking system similar thing when there's a crash if you just look at you know kind of like your personal medical health record there are changes that evolve over time and it changes the overall performance and efficacy of uh, not efficacy it changes the overall performance of the vehicle so doing that at some degree of scale helps us understand how these things change over time in addition to understanding a lot of truck related data and by the way we're capturing this from there's some open sources there's Um, A lot of FOIA and related kind of governmental work I'm involved in try to obtain more to did a lot Mm -hmm. in urban mapping which you may remember there's commercial agreements we connect to all our vehicles so we use telematics and so we know where all our trucks are at every time getting a couple million records a month per per truck in addition to like the components on the truck. Um, And then additionally I'm going out to OEMs, tier ones other components who make pieces, parties who make components in the truck value chain to understand how do those pieces perform? Mm-hmm. Meaning if I identify ISMO, which has tremendous efficacy, meaning it could reduce the likelihood of crashes 90%, I want to be able to independently assess that in an actuarial point of view, and then price that in. Meaning coffee could then offer a discount for treat, for, for trucks that use that, that yeah. whiz bang component. Um, outside of the truck itself, there's you know, a fair amount of federal data that the feds collect. It's okay. There's a lot of validation that has to happen. It's open data. I mean, you paid for it, but it's available to all, but knowing what to do with it is more you know, more to the point. Um, I also like to step back, just like, what are we trying to understand? Mm-hmm. And then where can we find something as opposed to like looking for X because X may not be represented in the way that you think so. And I, for the sake of what I do, I hope it's not available in that way because it's harder for others. But that's also where it gets sure. really exciting for me.
1: Yeah, great, great overview. And you you sort of tease this, do you feel like done right, This some of this goes back to the actual driver themselves to say, hey, here are very positive ROI activities that you can do to help you make more money because you're reducing risk or operating more efficiently, whatever that may be.
0: Yeah, we, we do that with our fleets today. So we, we're in touch with our fleets you know, generally on a weekly basis to help them make sure they're in compliance, uh, help them understand how they're using telematic, what can they do better? If it's, you no, know, if it's driver coaching, uh, it could be a variety of activities, but yeah, it's not, it's like, like, it's more strategic if you think about safety in a holistic way and kind of, mm-hmm. I think of it a little bit like uh, Edward Demings and, you know, quality is free from, mm-hmm. so, I mean, like safety is free if you think okay. about it in that concept. Now it's, you know, some folks don't want to open their business school textbooks to understand where this, quality is free comes from. But in the context of pushing out to get zero defects, same thing with safety, it it works that similar way. If you're oriented around safety incentivized for it, everything's gonna save you money and reduce your cost of ownership um, in in that way and make things more effective. So one thing we do with all our policy holders is if a fleet has a good year, meaning performing well with us, we'll give them up to a 10% dividend premium to apply to the next year. Right. Mm-hmm. So this is incentive for doing the right equipment, working with us, doing what they say they're going to do in a, in a variety of other things. Um, relative to the driver, there is a little bit of an existential question of what's the relationship with the driver and the truck. So two examples, one, you take a, uh, a million miler, so a driver who's maybe let's say 55 years old, um, and you put him in a 1998 Western star manual truck. Like he or she is probably really comfortable with the 18 speed transmission and knows what to do. If you try to present uh, a bunch of techno stuff to that driver, I meaning put him in a modern truck, he or she might want to turn the thing off because they're not used to it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So it's not clear it's an advantage for that type of driver. For the 18-year-old or 21-year-old who just got a CDL, wants to get into the world of trucking, you give that person the same 1998 Western star, I think we're going to have a sense of what's going to happen. They're not going to perform all that well because they're just not used to it. They mm-hmm. certainly didn't grow up in the manufacturing Permission. If you give that 18 or 21 year old and that their 2022 Volvo VNL with a whole suite of ADAS systems, automatic emergency braking, electronic stability control, etc., it's you know it's going to be great. Like I'll bet you a dollar they're not going to get a rear-end collision because the truck's going to take control of the vehicle mm-hmm. for them. Now, what we do also know is this is kind of going down the road of of self-driving kind of conversation, which is maybe another question. Is I look at avionics. And I see that we've had three generations of avionic systems beginning since I think like the 60s and we still have well no longer three we have two pilots in the plane Mm -hmm. so are we ever getting to a world of driver out it's like maybe in a limited circumstance but don't hold your breath but to that point the reason the pilots are in the plane and the reason they go to training on the simulators is because if something happens they have to know what to do Mm -hmm. so If you have a lot of, you know, let's say younger drivers in advanced trucks and they're not doing as much and they do need to do something, how will they respond? So this is just the danger of automation and systems in general. It's dangerous tension Uh, and nobody's figured out the answer yet. It's obviously evolving much more slowly in in trucking. But because of all the, I don't know, let's call it the press around self-driving trucks, it, it makes me want to combat a bunch of like the empty kind of vapid and senseless PR that gets thrown out there. Um, with some reality of, hey, there's actually no self-drive trucking happening today. The autonomous, tor- the autonomous corridor you keep referring to, that's a corridor with two drivers. Well, a driver and a tech, right? Everybody's in control of the cab. They're testing. That's what they're doing. Sure. There's nothing autonomous. About it. Yeah,
1: yeah, and that's. I think progress continues to be made, but understanding both sides of that, I think, is is key. As you as you said, so let's let's talk a little bit more about data. Um, data is everywhere, right? And and I feel like companies increasingly love to just say things like, you know, data is our gold or our oil or right. it's, it's this great asset, and yet it seems like so few people actually leverage it effectively for real value. I'm curious yeah. from your perspective, why do you think that is?
0: I think that data, I just made a note before we talked, data is misunderstood. Data is stubborn. Hmm. Data doesn't express itself. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a presumption that somehow, ah, I found a diamond and it's shining and it's a, it's a hard drive with a bunch of data on it. The problem is so much of this stuff is context dependent because what's meaningless in one industry is of enormous value in the other. A simple example, let's say, um, I don't know, an unemployment statistic. So we can have a national unemployment rate. That's fine for these like large macro, let's say, models to help understand things. But you know what? The unemployment rate in New York is in Manhattan is very different than the unemployment rate in Portland, Maine or Oregon for a number of obvious reasons. So it ends up you can get, you know, you can't get a regional unemployment figure. So the answer to the question should be based on what you're trying to solve for. But I don't think a lot of people are willing to get, it's not get in the weeds, just like to ask the questions to really yes. dig into what they understand. If somebody gives you the data, oh, thanks to the unemployment rate, when it was this last updated? Uh, what's your confidence in it? What's the provenance? Like, where did it, like, all these questions are things I always ask eight days. A week I used to give a talk, which you may have seen about metadata. It was a one-hour talk at my one of my stock talks or presentations at uh, conferences because it's like so mundane slash interesting and it really allows you to learn more about what everybody thinks they're talking about without having a think a real grip on it.
1: So do you think AI will be a game changer for data? Will it ask the questions? Will it, will it do the work that maybe most of us aren't able or willing to do? Yeah,
0: insofar as it will help me use data that I already have at the ready and help me write a complicated SQL query because I can't mm-hmm. do that. It's not gonna answer the, the ultimate existential question of you know wh- uh, wh- whatever you need to know. You're gonna have to do the work. So I think where AI is valuable in the context of data is it'll take away a lot of the grunt work. Mm-hmm. Uh, sure, it's like, low level, entry level type folks, Hopefully, they'll scale up and they could use a new natural language interface to do the same thing. It means that a variety of people are going to stop learning SQL, which is dangerous in the long term, but, but that's, that's a different story. But on its own, I don't think it really it does uh, what maybe people are thinking out of the gate. The other reason is that more, as we know this, the truism is the narrower you go, into a given domain, the less valuable, let's say, GPT three or four is going to be because sure. it's not trained on the universe or the corpus of insurance rate filings. It can't be. Um, it'll have more over time, but it's going to be you know lagging in two years. It's only going to have non copyrighted books and whatever backlinks from Twitter or Reddit and and other things. So people thinking of it as like a salvation is a is a little dangerous.
1: Always, always. Uh, how do we get more people to ask the questions. I mean, as an example, that you said that you know the yeah. unemployment rate. Like when I hear the unemployment rate is three and a half percent, my immediate reaction is so what? Yeah. In that it it matters so differently to different situations. If I have a restaurant in Irvine, California, and I can't find people to choose to come work in my restaurant, I don't care if the unemployment rate is three and a half percent or 30%. That's right. If I can't find the people and and they don't have the skills or the will uh, to do what I need them to do, right? So um, how, how do we get people to think more about the insights, which is really the end result yeah. that in some cases you can get from asking those right questions?
0: Yeah, I was always i know conditioned to kind of like look around corners and like what's what's the the obvious question that's about to come mm-hmm. answering that in my mind and thinking of like the follow up questions so we are kind of like looking around corners i think one thing that gpt helps with and could be enormously powerful for a generation of people is this concept of prompt engineering mm-hmm. so and i we can talk about mechanical turk separately it's a similar thing basically breaking whatever it is down to atomic tasks or smaller ones mm-hmm. so right you could say to chat gpt I don't know write me a novel about a boy who falls in love with a girl but can't be with her because she lives on the wrong side of the tracks and you know ultimately that's not going to be a great novel uh what's going to make it more useful is like you know help me generate an outline um here's the first paragraph here's the first chapter i'm going to define characters so you're writing these granular building blocks that allow you to get to that over time but it doesn't just come out of your mouth at once and i think the lazy way of thinking about it is gpt or AI is going to solve all my problems uh, instantly without me having to think about it. It doesn't. It's not thinking like GPT. It's not. It's not reasoning. It's not processing. Even though the words come out, it looks like it's reasoning. As a, that's not. That's a, It's like at Statistical distribution of probabilities of what's coming after that. It's. It's a gimmick in the way that uh, Tesla calls its cars self-driving. They're they're not. Like there is no autopilot. Let's be clear and finally, <laughs> government and others are recognizing that's not the case. But I think breaking up into morsels is the way to do it. And we found that with Urban Mapping like 10 years ago, we were doing a bunch of crowdsourcing for, for data collection. These atomic tax, tax, tasks become a really effective way to, to get to what you're trying to understand. But the process of doing that requires some planning.
1: Absolutely. And I wanna I want come back to that in a minute. I, I, you know, I laughingly asked you the question about is AI a game changer? I know you and I, uh, have had laps over the years. and you know, game changer has definitely been one of those terms that I think we both uh, agree is is a somewhat lazily used term to try to um, you know, create whether it's superlative or hype around some particular thing. Uh, yeah. what What's your current favorite term that you you find funny and curious that that is getting overly used? Uh, I think
0: it's more of a concept than a term. And the idea is that Silicon Valley, for me, it's like it's co-opted a lot of the language yes. and perverted it. So like with the SVB and ShakeOut, suddenly everybody's an expert in banking. <laughs> um, it started started talking a while about AUM. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if you're really managing assets the way like uh, a mutual fund is actually managing assets. You're not actively doing the work, guys. Yep. It, it sounds good. So you're borrowing from finance, you're borrowing from other industries. Another thing that I do love that makes me chuckle is basically adding tech onto whatever your legacy industry is and saying it's new. Mm-hmm. So pet tech, reg tech, food tech, insure tech, I guess. Uh, and then go one step further and plot all the publics of those legacy industries versus the ones that have tech. And you're going to see like a pretty, <laughs> pretty different level of performance. But again, you don't like to call the kettle black in Silicon Valley because then you know you're, you're not making friends. Um, yes. I do love the humble brag. I like that one because I think it's almost an implicit acknowledgement of what we're doing is a bit cringeworthy. Yes. But some people do it in like this faux earnest manner. And I just can't believe that it
1: persists. Yeah, some great insights. And I think the, the part that I so enjoy um, is this opportunity to be a translator for people. Mm-hmm. don't don't let them be intimidated actually explain it and say what they're they're saying this but what they're really doing or what they really mean is this and so don't just don't buy into it i think that um that that's probably one of my favorite roles to play is wow. you know i and look i'm i'm from a small town in indiana and i often will just use that and say we we don't talk this way in frankfurt where i came from and people did okay uh you know the language matters for sure but why are we why do we need to make it inaccessible let's let's take the opposite approach and let's yeah let's make it more inclusionary for all all of those that that can and and should be able to understand this
0: I think it's a little bit like it's just like guilds. Like before, we had the medical profession. It's the same. They got their secret handshake. They got their mm-hmm. secret language. It's exclusionary and allows them to have a kind of a gate around them and is exclusivity to penetrate it. Like the trend is now to, you know, have common sense, plain language contracts to be able to yes. explain. But depending where you are, if you want to feel privileged and you want to kind of hold back what maybe could be distributed more broadly, you want to have that scarcity. It can benefit you to use this kind of inaccessible language, but again, I don't know. Maybe that just benefits the person, the, the ego of the person using the language.
1: Yes, I think that 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 definitely is a part of it. Well, thanks for exploring that a little bit, and let's transition. You mentioned earlier, you know, you you had urban mapping. You were in San Francisco during that startup. Uh, you now have spent most of the time with. Coffee Financial in New York, although you're not there right now. Um, how would you describe the differences in those cities? Because at one level, they're fairly similar when it comes to what we were just talking about from these, you know, uh, language and, and sort of exclusivity. But how how do you think about the differences between those two, which are really two of the most important cities in our innovation economy? yeah, I used to
0: kind of think that right this is really that Silicon Valley is where you kind of want to start the idea. Once you get it off the ground and you grow it up, then you take it to New York. So like a Silicon Valley perspective is like we made it. We went public. And everybody in New York on Street's thinking, oh yeah, you just like you just showed up. Like this is where the party starts. It's not going public. It's running a successful enterprise and growing it. Um, I do think that the, the innovation and all the excitement Silicon Valley offers, has offered his certainly still there but there's a lot of it in new york now mm-hmm. i think mm-hmm. over COVID, it's proven that we can do things remotely uh when i first got to new york in 2000 man it was like three years of tax returns to get a lease like well this is a new venture i don't and everything was incredibly difficult but also that surviving in new york there's a lot to it like at the end of every day you suffer and you're exhausted maybe you cried or somebody hit you or you're mugged but you did it. Damn it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in San Francisco, it's, yeah, it's you know, I had somebody bring me my latte and, you know, got my organic cherries without me having to go anywhere. But I feel like now the, there's not a necessity to be in San Francisco, especially as the next generation of Internet enabled businesses will dig heavily into industry. Silicon Valley matters. Less. So if you got a general purpose software company, enterprise software selling to everybody in the sun makes sense to be out there. If you're doing something in, you know, I don't know, it's fashion, insurance, it's financial services, CPG, go where those industries, I think, are because that's what that's what matters. A lot of the foundational stuff you can learn, but we got to bring in is the co-founder, the team, the domain, the environment to kind of really get that escape velocity for whatever the business is you're trying to grow.
1: So you're you're advising a prospective founder today on how and where to start is is it what you just said go go to where the the concentration of that industry is wherever that is or how, how would you think about suggesting where where to potentially uh get yeah off the ground?
0: i mean i think certainly i mean being in the, the proximity to san francisco was great for just all the wonderful talent and ideas and in early stage capital it's not it's not crucial uh it depends where you come from if you've been working on let's say a large Bank for five years, you know what you're building because you saw it every day and the opportunity just fell on the floor because it wasn't worth it at the bank to pick up these opportunities. You know, I think you probably get a pretty good opportunity to to strike out wherever you want to live. Just get ready to make a bunch of trips to where money centers are to validate what you're doing and get people on board. But otherwise, I don't think there's a compelling reason to be there. If you're trying to hire, you know, like the next AI startup where you might require hundreds of PhDs, which means you want to poach from everywhere else, that might be a different story. Maybe there's an R&D center eventually that matters in a place like that. And that's really a function of where do people want to live? Do they want to work from home or do they want to come to an office? Uh, but I think the geography matters a lot, a lot less than it did.
1: Great, great feedback. So we we you talked briefly about it earlier. I want to just get it on record. So I I call it scrappy. I feel like in the Urban mapping days, you know, part of where we resonate with each other, I think is that we we both kind of have that somewhat scrappy entrepreneur orientation, but tell the story about how you use Craigslist to really crowdsource uh, data for a, a data business, because not not many people have utilized tools right. like that or, or Mechanical Turk, as you mentioned earlier, as ways to actually create product.
0: Yeah, and actually, the I'm going to tell you about the FBI getting involved in that. Um, so for for listeners at home or or on the street, uh, one of the urban mapping created a database of neighborhood boundaries. It's socially defined space, so to kind of codify it in a in a data sense was kind of a big deal. Um, another product we had was neighbor was public transit. So it's normalizing and aggregating public transit it was far before GTFS in any initiative that an agency would kind of actively work with a developer, such as what we're trying to do urban mapping. Um, it was before iPhones, Craigslist was popular, there was some crappy Nokia phone you could kind of configure it to do certain things. Apptech was a big company, they had all the data. So in building the transit database, what was important for me is to understand things that matter for users. So, you know, where are the entrances to a given station, let's say. So at a given entrance or an egress point, there are a variety of attributes associated with it. So is a staircase an elevator has it been 24 hours? Can you pay? Does it connect to all lines in the station? Let's just say the variety of attributes. So how do you collect all this rich attribute and um, attribute data at the station, at the egress, at the line, at the system level? So fortunately, there's a lot of stuff you can glean from online. So that helps you form the basis for this stuff. But ultimately, there's things that can't be validated unless you go out into the field. So what we started doing was making up these docs and we basically post on Craigslist, looking for people to pay, I don't know, per hour or per station. And they'd walk around various cities with clipboards and they'd note, you know, if it's handicap accessible, if it's by directional staircase, et cetera. And so at one point the FBI got in touch and they were like concerned that I was doing this and wanted to understand why I was doing it. <laughs> so they basically said like, okay, but like be, be careful. It wasn't a threat, but it was just, cause it was, you know, like the Madrid bombing wasn't that long ago. wasn't like that far ago. Um, I eventually, a couple years later, filed a lawsuit with NYPD, uh, sorry, with um, New York City Transit to try to get access to all the egress level data that they had because obviously there was a website. There were big four foot maps in every station that told you where the egress points were. So I ended up filing a lawsuit against New York City Transit to obtain this data. And there was uh, an affidavit filed by the chief of counter-terrorism of NYPD saying, if this information falls into the wrong hands, it can be just like the Madrid bombings from 2002 or three all over again, to which of course I completely agreed, but not quite sure how asking like if an entrance is open 24 hours is online with, in line with, with, with dangerous sensitive information. So ended up losing that lawsuit. And that was largely because the courts were just way deferential to you know sure. to the public in that sense. But the iPhones came along, uh, actually no, the iPhones didn't come along then. Um, if you know what we wanted to do, um, I sued New York City Transit later in a separate lawsuit trying to get access to the timetable data, which they said was copyrighted, uh, which is a fun lawsuit because it's it's not, uh, and you can't, you can't own that stuff. But the way that we thought about this in general was, okay, we want to collect every bit of information about the transit system. How do we do it? So we can break it up into smaller and smaller tasks, and eventually we can turk it out. And so we kind of supplanted the people in the field using mechanical turk over time. And that was like wholly effective, apart from some stations, some systems, like I think maybe Cairo has a metro system, which isn't that well documented. So we can't do all that online. But basically, if I say I want to collect all these pieces of information, how do you create these atomic tasks and do it at scale to enable that? And there's a way to do it. You just have to really break it down so it becomes kind of a self-perpetuating task and do things like auto adjudication. So throw the same task at two people. If they don't agree, then you throw it to a third to adjudicate mm-hmm. Lots of smart stuff. And you're paying these people like a penny transaction. Um, and it was a really exciting way to use the masses to do these kind of mundane, very routinized tasks which would otherwise just be overwhelming. Well, and,
1: and I think very instructive that on multiple levels. One is you can build something of really strong asset value if you plan, as you said earlier, that some of this data, thinking about the End goal of what you're trying to achieve, and then breaking it down into these atomized tasks, in some cases, maybe the only efficient or even possible way to accumulate some of the information that you're you're seeking. And so I think there's a lot of opportunities still, particularly as you think yeah. about AI or or other machine learning training models to go put together data sets that no one has ever figured out like even figuring out how to accumulate it is a uh, an entrepreneurial endeavor creative endeavor unto itself that's right
0: and then i mean it's creating but then there's the case of transit there's maintaining it and the cost to maintain it is uh it's not a fraction of the cost to build it because you don't know what's going to change next you've got to be monitoring basically everything all the time that's what a lot of people don't you know, again, something people don't think about in the context of I want the data, AI is a game changer for data, et cetera.
1: That's right. So let's let's uh, end here. A couple final questions. First, you know, as you think about coffee financial in this market, um, we're in a fairly tumultuous or uncertain economic and financial market right now. Um, and, you know, my general attitude is, I don't care about that when you take the long view on innovation, it's not going to slow down. So how do you think about that for your business and just planning, right? I mean, people are still going to be moving goods via trucks. Uh, there's still going to be a significant need there. There's still a lot of mispricing. Like, How do you think about planning for your business in an environment like this? Yeah, it's
0: it's compulsory coverage, so you can't. To your point, you can't move stuff without having insurance for it. People are not going to stop buying stuff, you know, recession be damned. People aren't buying yeah. as much toilet paper as frequently, but we still need it. Um, insurance, this line of business has not been profitable for some time. There's a measure called the combined ratio, which is crudely a measure of profitability. It's around one thirteen now, which means a dollar premium is paying out a dollar thirteen cents. The last time it was profitable was coming out of the two thousand eight. Global financial crisis hmm. so you know high rate interest rate environments like those are those are good we can generate cash because we it's, again it's part of the business like there's a balance sheet and those things are sitting there for regulatory or compliance or or, or other reasons and that's cash that can be generated the overall risk is better um, in these times so basically people are less likely to hold out for five years to get a big payout in their lawsuit because they don't have a job. They don't have cash. They want money. They'll take a decent settlement and they'll run. And these are, these and other reasons are why insurance, at least in our line of business, was profitable last 10 years ago. And I think we're coming into this as well. So for us, it's, it's full steam ahead. Um, there's nothing really changing there. We've introduced some financial services products. The first is a, a credit card focused on the needs of the SMB trucker Per you know, on top of the call. These are the guys who are getting squeezed increasingly because of margin erosion through inflation and other things. So, if they're still fundamentally well run, but they're just getting penalized, like that's if we can help them with a credit product to give them 30 day payment terms and give them cash back on fuel and other essential items, that's absolutely huge. And it mm-hmm. just goes towards better risk and better, better mitigating against like these adverse situations. So, there's nothing that's really different for us. Uh, we've always believed in responsible underwriting, which is don't write the business unless you can do it profitably, as opposed to say, what I call the three or four, you know, horsemen in the public insure techs that, you know, went up if they did and then way down because what they did was they effectively closed their eyes and they wrote business. And now they're learning, obviously, that, you know, underwriting profitability matters.
1: Mm-hmm. Great update. And, you know, I think the thing I also like about what you were sort of implying, I think some of these other financial products that you're talking about create the potential for much deeper connection between drivers and carriers or, or others that they work with done right, because they're viewed as solutions uh, and, and maybe they're it it helps cement some of these loyal relationships more than just being purely transactional type.
0: That's right. We, we broadly see the role that we're fulfilling is, our affinity group is the SMB trucker. There are a variety mm-hmm. of things that matter to him or, or her. Um, you can look at USAA and their affinity group is the veteran independence. It's their variety of things that matter to him or her. It's, it's not that dissimilar. Okay. And so if we keep our eye on the prize that way and satisfy all their needs to help make them mitigate risk, be profitable, have a thriving business, that's really good for all. It just ends up, nobody's really taken a look at this segment. I'm not saying it's, it's deemed subprime, but it's just been deemed not worth looking at.
1: Mm-hmm. So, Ian, one of the things I, I'd love to ask someone like you who's always thinking and analyzing, how do you keep yourself sharp from your point of view as an entrepreneur, leader? What, what is it that you feel like you do intentionally to keep that going?
0: Yeah, well, I could kind of fault myself and say what I don't do enough of, but maybe to be more rosy, uh, there's certainly engaging Right. With as many as I can, diverse points of view are incredibly helpful to understand how I'm framing a question. Uh, reading, i know, you know, be the first to admit, I just don't read like I used to because mm-hmm. there are nuggets coming from everywhere. So I'm reading the Bloomberg articles instead of the book about the history of the transcontinental railroad, which is maybe more valuable. But that said, I'm going to be in a mental space to do it. Um, being willing to be wrong, so I to put myself mm-hmm. out there, because that's I think the best way to Absolutely. learn. Certainly, hiring smarter people than me to learn more in a given domain, um, and being willing to be to be questioned, in that sense, because there's a whole other generation under me now. I mean, us, I mean, both of us, right? We're okay. we're 50 years older than we first met, and so they, these folks are like more than valid in how they think about the problems. They're the next generation of emerging or maybe emerged leaders already, their styles are different, their backgrounds, their biases are different and we can't exclude them as much as I might want to like hand wave a TikTok, which I generally do. There is an opportunity there, but I can't throw the baby out of the bathwater and thinking about it that way. Mm
1: -hmm. Thank you for joining. I mean, so many, I could could do this for hours with you, as you know, Um, so many great nuggets in here. Uh, I just wanna acknowledge, you know, I'm so grateful for our friendship and that we've been able to maintain it. And as I expected such a fun conversation, we covered a lot of ground. Um, I'm glad we could record it for, for others. Maybe, maybe if it's even just for the two of us to listen to, that's fine. But, uh, I'm so excited for you and and Mike and the, the team at coffee. I feel like you guys are, are just getting started yet. You've made so much progress, uh, in the time, uh, that, you know, you have been at it and worked even through a pandemic, uh, and so congrats on all the progress and thanks again for joining.
0: Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you so much, Kerry. Uh, anyway, well, I'll throw mm-hmm. the platitudes back on you, but what you've accomplished since we first met has been pretty fabulous as well. I don't know how many businesses and directions to different industries as well. So I'm I'm thrilled where you are now. It seems like a great perch to be able to impact a lot more while still kind of driving ahead at your core in the way that you want to proceed. So that's, that's great to see. And I look forward to seeing you live
1: soon. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Operate Podcast. If you like this conversation, as a favor to me, you can rate us, review us, or subscribe, or tell your friends. You can also reach out to us on Twitter, Operate Podcast. Until next week, get out there and operate.